I love singing hymns. Reminds me of going to church <clears throat> as a kid. Sorry, <laughs> I didn't finish that sentence. Reminds me of going to church as a kid, and it um, reminds me of what followers of Jesus have sung for generations. And as I hear the words of that hymn, I think, yeah, that's true. I need you, Lord, every hour. And I don't know where you're coming in this week. Um, I don't know what your week has been like. I've had a crummy week. And so coming into church this morning, feeling worn down and low, and I can say, I don't know that there's ever a time when I come into church on a Sunday morning and I'm not encouraged by being with you and by worshiping God together. Because sometimes I come into church and you've had a crummy week too. And so we commiserate a little bit, and C.S. Lewis said that friendship is born out of that conversation that says, oh, you too? I thought I was the only one. That's where friendship happens. But it's, I'm also encouraged when I walk in on a Sunday morning and I hear a testimony of what God is doing in your life, or I hear how you're following Him boldly, just listening to someone share with me this morning about just following courageously after the Lord and God doing something in that. Or getting a text this week from someone in our church family saying, I just prayed with someone in our church family to receive Christ this week. And I just think, praise God. We need Him every hour. Yeah, that's worth... I think of listening to this basketball game next door with all these parents and people clapping and cheering, and I think that's what our worship of God ought to be like because that's what He's like. He's worth celebrating. And we need Him every hour because we're completely dependent on Him. So I just want to say thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for being a part of our church family. Or if you're visiting with us, just welcome. Welcome here. And I want to especially thank you for being here on Super Bowl Sunday. Although, hold on. I, <clears throat> I can't say that. That's, uh, that's trademarked. Um, you've probably noticed that if you listen to advertisements for the Super Bowl or you... You watch commercials during the Super Bowl that they can't actually say Super Bowl unless they pay the NFL for the rights to the trademark named Super Bowl. So listen now, if you didn't already know that, to commercials on the radio that will advertise for their products that you should get before the big game. Or they'll say, come and buy a television from us just in time for the pro football championship. Stephen Colbert, the late-night host, some of you may know him, has found probably my favorite loophole through this. Some of you may know what I'm talking about, but after sharing his frustration about having to utter really vague, meaningless phrases like, after the big game, the winner will go to the animated mouse theme park, <laughs> he decided he'd come up with his own name for the Super Bowl, and then he would celebrate that. So he's celebrating the Superb Owl. And um, you can follow his coverage or his comments, or you can make your own comments by, on social media by using the hashtag SuperbOwl. <clears throat> and if you look at it kind of quick in the hashtag, it looks... A, I mean, because when you put them... Never mind. You get, you get why it works. Anyway, thank you, Robin. Regardless... 
Thanks for being with us here to celebrate the Lord before the big game. It kind of reminds me, though, does it, does it ever seem like the people who are in charge um, have nothing better to do than to just make our lives miserable with their stupid decisions? Yes, right? <clears throat> Especially in an election year, we might feel that way. Now, interestingly, that's exactly what Peter's talking about in our passage in 1 Peter this morning, um, more or less. Okay, not, not the Super Bowl per se, but dealing with people in authority, people in positions of authority. Now, we know, if you've been with us through any part of this series, you know that Peter's writing to a group of people who have been marginalized. They've been ostracized or they've been shamed by the people around them because of their commitment to Jesus. That's what they're experiencing. They have turned away from what's culturally acceptable. And because of that, because of their belief in Jesus, it's made people either upset with them or angry with them, and it's made them outsiders in their, among their own people. Peter is encouraging them that as followers of Jesus, they have this great hope, this hope that overrides their experience of the people around them, and it, it overrides the fact that they're being ostracized or shamed because of their beliefs, because they have this hope in a glorious future with God. And as a child of the king, they have a hope of what he's doing in them and through them right now. So it's not just a future hope, it's a present hope. Because God's doing something in them that they can be hopeful about. And something is waiting for them that they can be hopeful about. And so Peter is writing to encourage them as believers, you have great hope, both now and later. You've actually been rescued, if you're a follower of Jesus, out of a life of hopelessness. That's where you were before. And the fact that you belong to God changes everything. It changes both your future and your present. Despite your circumstances, it changes those things. So even when it's hard, even when you have a crummy week, even when you're low, you can have great hope as a follower of Jesus. So live for God now, but keep heaven in view. Live now with an eternal perspective. That's kind of the tone of the whole book is the big picture of what's going on. Now, last week, Peter reminded them that when they put their faith and their trust in Jesus, it changes not only who they are, not only does it change their identity, but it changes what they do. It changes how they live or how they ought to live because they're kingdom citizens. They don't belong here. Their home is in heaven with the Lord. So it's worth reminding you this morning that if you're here and you have placed your trust in Jesus as your Savior, that's true of you as well. You're a kingdom citizen. So if you feel frustrated that you don't fit in or belong, that's okay because you don't fit in or belong. You don't belong here. You belong with the Lord. You're a kingdom citizen. You're a citizen of heaven, a child of the King. And that's what Peter's writing to encourage them about. And that applies to us as the followers of Jesus today. And the people that Peter is writing to, and you who have placed your trust in Jesus, were chosen by God so that you could proclaim the excellencies of the one who brought you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what Peter said. You were chosen for a mission, for a purpose, that you would proclaim the greatness of God and what he's done for you, that you would tell his story, essentially. 
that your life would declare and proclaim what some people refer to as the great exchange. And I don't know if you've heard that term before. We've talked about it maybe once or twice. That God has done a work in your life and He's exchanged darkness for light or hopelessness for hope. That at one point we were living in rebellion to God, lost to sin, separated from Him, and that Jesus exchanged His life for your life. That Jesus accepted your punishment and freed you from the penalty of your sin. And I just have to say, we say it a lot. And Scripture repeats it a lot. But does it ever get old to say that? I mean, does it ever get old to say that once we were lost and separated from God, but that He chased us down and invited us into His family, adopted us into His family? It never gets old. Once you did not belong, Peter said, but now you belong to God. Once you were lost to sin and under the wrath of God, but now you have received his mercy, he says. How amazing is that? And he says, that's who you are as a follower of Jesus. So the way that you live says something to the people around you. The way that you live says something to the people around you about where your hope lies. What are you hoping in? And the question is, do we live our lives in such a way that it looks like our hope is in the same thing as theirs? Or do we live in such a way that declares that our hope is in something far greater than that? Because our hope is in the King. We're going to look at 1 Peter this morning. And before we do that, I'm just going to ask if you would pray with me before we open God's Word this morning. So would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, I just ask that you would speak very clearly through your word this morning. Would you fill us up with hope? Lord, the truth is we have great hope because of who you are and what you've invited us into, and we often lose hope. So this morning, Lord, fill us up with hope as we look into your word, as we place our trust in you as our Savior. Would you remind us this morning of the joy of being part of your family? And Lord, I would pray for those among us this morning that don't yet know you as Savior. I would ask that, Lord, you would continue to draw them to yourself and that you would make your word and your heart clear this morning through your word. Pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we brought some for you, and you can probably find them on the seats around you, or you can just listen. That's totally fine. If you're using our Bible this morning, we're going to be on page 1015, way at the back of your Bible in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter's saying your life, the way that you live in front of others, tells the story of what you hope in. It tells where your hope lies. And Peter's going to continue on that theme this morning with some specific examples. And he's going to continue on that theme next week. He's going to talk about how that applies in the marriage relationship. And he's going to continue on that, te- on that theme again and again until they get it. That the way that you live says something about where your hope is. And this week we're going to look at what it looks like to deal with human authority as a kingdom citizen. 
What does it look like to be under the authority of other people as a kingdom citizen? And let me just preface this by saying that this passage is radically un-American. Here's why I say that. Because we have conditioned ourselves to believe that pursuing our happiness and our comfort and expressing our opinion are just part of who we are as Americans. I have a right to be happy And I have the obligation to express my opinion, especially when I'm right and you're wrong. As an American, I should tell you that you're wrong and that I'm right. I should express my opinion. And Peter says, as a follower of Jesus, as a citizen of heaven, I want to free you from that obligation. Okay? You are not obligated to pursue your happiness over God's glory. And you are not obligated to express your opinion all the time. Doesn't mean you don't have one. Okay, but look with me. First Peter chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 13. Peter's going to talk about submission to authority. Look with me here in the first few verses. It says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now remember that First Peter is written to a group of believers who are under persecution for their beliefs under persecution from authority, either either government authority or religious authority or employers. It's this kind of social persecution. They're experiencing insults. They're, They're receiving abuse, rejection, shame. They're losing money. They're losing jobs. They're losing property because they're associated with Jesus. And Peter says, good, I'm glad that you're suffering because that will remind you how sinful you are. No, it's not, it's not what he says, okay? That's often what we say. Oh, everything's hard and everyone's mean to me because I'm bad and God is punishing me, but that's not what Peter's saying. Peter's actually trying to help them minimize the persecution that they're experiencing. Peter says, like Jesus, submit yourself to authority. Remember when they had the big question to Jesus about whether we should pay taxes to Caesar or not. And Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Live in submission to authority. Scripture is really clear on this point that human authority is established by God. He's the one that sets up kings and he's the one that takes them down. Daniel chapter 2 says, praise the name of God forever and ever for he has all wisdom and power. And then it says this, he controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. Who's in charge? God's in charge. Everybody relax for a minute. Peter says, you're kingdom citizens, but you're submitted to human authority because it's the will of God, because it pleases him to do so. It's a win-win. It pleases God and it's self-defense because, look at what he says. He says, Jesus submitted to authority, and if you live like Jesus, submitted to authority, you silence the foolish talk 
or the ignorant talk of foolish people. You silence the accusations of the people who are abusing you for things that aren't true. Peter just says, don't give them anything to work with, right? And when they accuse you or even abuse you, which we're going to get to in a minute, guess who looks bad? Not you. And guess who gets the glory? God does. Verse 16 of that section we just read says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Peter says, you're free. You're no longer a slave. Well, what were we enslaved to before? John chapter 8 says, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So you were a slave from... You were a slave to sin, but now you're a servant of God. You've been bought out of slavery. And if you remember, which I hope we never forget, what was the purchase price for you out of slavery from sin? Look over at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. This is what it cost to redeem you out of slavery, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You were purchased out of slavery to sin with the blood of Jesus, Peter says. So you're free. You're free to live as a servant. Wait a minute. That's what it said, right? You're, you're free to live as a servant of God. Does that sound a little weird? He says you're free from the slavery of sin, and now you're free to live a life as a citizen of heaven, as a child of the king. Free to live out your new identity in Christ in service to him. Remember, you're a chosen race. You're a holy priesthood. You have been set apart for the ministry of God and the worship of his name. Here's what Peter's saying, and I think he's saying this throughout the whole book. Guys, big picture. Step back for a minute. Big picture, you win. Relax. Big picture, you win. So you're free. You're free to be gracious. You're free to be meek. You're free to not take everything personally. You're free not to panic. You're free not to lose hope. Now hang on to that for a minute as we look at verse 17. Because it says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We've talked about this passage before in this room. Honor everyone. It's more than being civil to people. It's genuine respect for others. This is a significant statement, and here's why. I want you to think for a minute about your interactions with people. I want you to think about your interactions with people in the workplace. I want you to think about your interactions with people in your home. I want you to think about your interactions with people on social media. We already referenced this once, but in an election year, this is maybe a good time to bring it up, since we're talking about submission to authority, I just want you to consider your conversations and thoughts about the candidates in the upcoming elections. Just think about some of the things that you have said or thought or thought and then said or thought and then yelled at the radio, at the TV, at someone that disagrees you. Now think of... Peter's charge to the followers of Jesus, honor everyone. Honor everyone. Genuine respect. Now, how are we doing on that one? 
And what does it say to the people around us that are watching us? Are there foolish people? Yes. Foolish and ignorant, Peter says. Okay? So that's true. Honor everyone. Peter's saying, I think, it's cute that you guys get so worked up about this stuff. I don't know if he would actually say that. I want to believe that Peter is kind of snarky. I don't know if he is. But think about it for a minute. Just think about it in the context of what Peter has already said. Okay? You have this great and overriding hope. This unimaginable inheritance. You have eternal salvation. You have a seat at the banquet table with Almighty God. Creator of the universe has adopted you as his child. And he's your king. You are free from setting your hope on the next president or the current one. You're free from that. You're free to show honor. Doesn't mean that you don't care. Doesn't mean you don't have an opinion. Doesn't mean you you don't pray. It doesn't mean that you don't vote. But it does mean that you live like your hope for the future rests in something greater than the president of the United States. Or your boss. So we show honor to everyone, he says. But there's something greater that we show to each other. What's that? Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. There's something greater than honor. Love. Do to our fellow followers of Jesus. Honor everyone, but love your brothers and sisters in Christ because you guys are in this together. So take care of each other. Hold each other up. Encourage each other. Be there. Support each other because everyone's going through this hard thing together. And if you live like Christ, it's probably going to hurt. So you're going to need some friends to rally around you. So love each other. The second part of this pairing that we see here, shed some light on the questions that come up in our heart when we hear somebody say, submit to human authority. Peter says, fear God, honor the emperor or the king, the guy in charge. Okay? You honor or respect the king but there's a special kind of honor that's reserved for God. There's a clear hierarchy of authority here. And Peter says, let's not confuse the two, okay? Because there is a point where human authority can no longer be submitted to. It was Peter himself in Acts chapter 5 who said, we must obey God rather than man. So Peter understands the difference. We don't confuse who has ultimate authority, God is the ultimate authority, but that doesn't mean that we expect human authority to be godly authority. Just because God has put someone in charge doesn't mean that they're godly. It means that we understand that our submission to human authority is out of obedience to the ultimate authority, God. Honor everyone. Love your fellow believers. Fear is reserved for God alone because God is sovereign. Because we know that someday every knee will bow before God. And so our hope is in God. And we also fear God because we know that both salvation and judgment come from the hand of God. Peter says, submit to authority. And he continues in verse 18. Submit to authority even if that means you're going to suffer for it. Servants, he says, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, 
one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when, you're, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. We could probably have a really long conversation about who Peter is addressing in this part of the passage. I don't want us to become distracted by our issue here and miss Peter's issue, but I think it's worth talking about that Peter is writing to servants or some translations, if you have an NLT, it'll say slaves. And this passage, among many others, has been used throughout history to justify slavery. This is not a defense of slavery. We can be really clear about that up front. The morality of slavery isn't even being discussed here, for one. It's certainly not condoning the type of slavery that we are familiar with in American history. It's difficult for us to understand slavery in the ancient world. Um, Servant is actually a much more accurate translation here. Slaves or servants would experience much more freedom than we would understand that in our current sort of understanding or our context. They could marry, they could have families. Some people would even sell themselves into slavery to kind of get ahead or get out of debt. You've heard people say that you're a slave to your debt. Well, literally in the ancient world, sometimes you're enslaved to debt. But you could also buy yourself out of slavery. Or you could be redeemed. You could be bought out of slavery by someone else. Now, that sounds familiar. That's actually why the language of redemption is used so often through the New Testament, because it would have been very familiar to the people that are hearing it. It would have been very effective in communicating the idea of redemption of believers. You've been bought out of slavery by the blood of Jesus that paid the price to purchase you out of slavery, the act of redemption. It's actually where we get our name, Redemption Hill, Calvary, the hill where Jesus died, where he shed his blood to pay the price to buy us out of slavery to sin and out from under the wrath of God. So this idea of redemption we see over and over through the New Testament would have meant something very significant to them because they would understand this. In this context, Peter isn't addressing whether slavery or owning servants is justified or not. What he's saying is there are believers, there are followers of Jesus who are servants and have masters. That's just true of your condition. And what I'm saying is submission to authority applies to you as well. It applies to your condition. It applies to your condition if your master is good and kind and gentle. It applies to your condition if he's unjust and unfair and abusive. If you're going to identify yourself with Jesus, regardless of who you are or what your position is in the world, you're going to have to understand that not everybody's going to understand you, not everybody's going to like it, and not everyone's going to like you. Peter says there's a blessing for those who suffer for the sake of righteousness, who suffer for God and His glory. There's an important distinction in that statement, suffer for righteousness, He says, suffering unjustly. He's quick to point out that there is no blessing for suffering for being insufferable. There's no blessing, no promise of blessing for those who are just proud and uncaring, who are unsubmissive, who are inconsistent with Scripture. 
There's no promise there. But if you suffer for doing what is good, God is pleased, he says. Why is that? Why is God pleased when we suffer? Is it because God wants to watch us suffer? It's because God likes to watch us look like his son. That's what I think Peter's leading us to at the end of this passage this morning. It's because we represent him accurately to the world when we endure unrighteous suffering. When we are doing what is good and right by God and we suffer for it, God says, that looks like my son Jesus. So you are portraying an accurate picture of me to the world because it looks like Jesus. He says, submit to authority, be willing to suffer like Jesus. Look at verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed For you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter says, what does it look like to live as a kingdom citizen submitted to human authority? It looks like Jesus. And we don't have to look much further than Jesus to see an example of what it looks like. You've been called, he says. To this you were called what? To what you were called? To suffer? No to do good, to live righteously, to live like Jesus, to follow his example. He said he gave you a template. He gave you an example to follow. So follow in his steps. By the way, it likely includes suffering. Because if you're going to follow in the steps of Jesus, he had more than his fair share. Our natural response to this, at least my natural response to hearing this, is that's not fair. That's not fair, Lord, that you would call me to do good and then suffer for it. Why is that? But every time I ask that question, I'm convicted. Because I'm not sure that I want to have a conversation about what's fair with Jesus. And I think that's what Peter's doing. I think he's speaking up on Jesus' behalf to say, hold on a minute because I know what you're thinking He says, do you really want to talk about what's unfair? Look what he says in verse 22. He did nothing wrong. He said nothing wrong. When he was reviled, which is a very harsh word, by the way. So when he was criticized, when he was condemned unfairly, when he was attacked unfairly, when he was abused unfairly, He didn't criticize or attack or abuse in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten revenge. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's not sitting, standing up there just saying, oh, you just wait. Oh, you have no idea what you have done. Remember what he said? You have no idea what you've done. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He entrusts himself to God. And I think ultimately for us, it's a trust issue. Ultimately, it's a trust issue. Jesus didn't place his trust in a human judge or his hope in a human judge. He placed his hope in the real judge. Jesus didn't place his hope in a human king. He placed his hope in the real king. So he's free to live and to die as a servant of God. Free to be gracious. Free to be meek. Which, by the way, is not weakness. Meekness comes from a position of strength. Choosing to be meek, even though he could have said, Oh, just wait. Oh, just wait. You have no idea who my dad is. But he didn't. Free to not take everything personally. Father, forgive them. Free to not panic. Free to not lose hope. You want to know what it looks like to deal with human authority as a kingdom citizen. You look no further than Jesus. That's what it looks like. And look at what he endured and look at how he responded and then remember why he did it. Peter says, he was on the cross for you. For you and me. He wore our sins on the cross. He died so that we could go free. He died so that we could live. He was wounded so that we could be healed. The great exchange. He says, you were lost like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd. He paid the price and you placed your trust in him and you returned to the shepherd. You repented and you turn back to God, and now He is the overseer of your soul. He is the guardian of your soul. So remember that, and then live in light of that, Peter says. Live like that's true, because it is true. So I'll ask the question I asked at the beginning. Does it ever seem like the people in charge have nothing better to do then make your life and my life miserable with their poor decisions, I'll say. Does it ever feel like you are under attack because you follow Jesus? Does it ever feel like you're being specifically targeted or that God is under attack by the people around you, by the government or by your boss or by whoever it is, people in authority? God says, you can honor me and you can bring me glory by living like Jesus. That's what you can do about it. If you're going to live in light of who you are, your new identity, then you submit to authority. That's what he says. Not only because it minimizes persecution for you and it silences your accusers, probably makes them look bad, because but because it says something about what you really hope in. It's because it says something true about God. And it looks like Jesus. And people say, why are you doing that? Why are you living that way? In a couple weeks, we're going to get to that question when Peter brings that up and makes the assumption that people are asking you that question. Why do you live with such hope? It seems pretty hopeless, and it gives you an opportunity to share a reason for the hope that you have. But what if Donald Trump becomes president? What if Hillary Clinton becomes president? Okay, I'm trying to pray on everyone's fears. I don't know where you are. 
okay? I don't know which one sounds more like suffering, okay? Maybe both. What happens if that happens? Peter says, hold on, step back. Big picture, you win. So you're free. You're free to be gracious. You're free to show honor. You're free to be meek. You're free to not take it all personally. You're free to not panic. And you're free to not lose hope. Even if that authority is foolish or ignorant, even if that authority is foolish and ignorant, even if that authority is abusive or unjust, our submission and our willingness to endure hardship points people to Jesus because it looks like Him. So let the way you live your life say true things about who God is and what He's done. That's the challenge that we have as believers. And when you lose your nerve or you lose your patience, then remember what Jesus did and remember why he did it. Remember the cross and remember who you were in relation to God and remember what he endured and how he lived for you. He did it for you. Here's the thing. I think we know that deep down. My question and challenge to us as the church is, how will we model that? Because there's a lot of us in the room, and between us, we know a lot of people, and we live life in front of a lot of people. And I would just say from here to November, let's use the election as an example, how will you image Jesus to the world? How will you do it? How will you guard what you say and what you think? How will you honor everyone? even foolish, ignorant, unjust, abusive people for the glory of God. And here's where my heart is this morning. More than anything, more than anything, I think we need to pray that our heart would break. Not break for the hostility of the world, not break for the hardship that we endure as followers of Jesus, but that our hearts would break for the people that don't have this hope. Because you're going to go out into the world this week and you're going to go to work or you're going to go to school or you're going to go even to your home or spend time with family members who don't know Jesus and don't know how desperately God loves them. And the question is, how are you going to live in such a way? And how are you going to speak in such a way to tell them about the hope that you have? We have to pray that our hearts would break for people that don't know how desperately God loves them. Because we are in a world of people who have wandered away from the shepherd and he's pursuing them. And we have an opportunity to tell them about the hope that we have. Incredible hope as children of the king with this precious inheritance that's waiting for us. Big picture, we win, we're set. So let's use the time we have now to point people to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you're amazing and you're so good and you have endured so much more than we can ever hope to endure. And you have given so much more than we could ever repay you for, thank you for, praise you for. Our songs and our words are so inadequate. But we ask, Lord, that 
you would turn our praise and our worshipy view into something that pleases you. Lord, I pray that we would live in such a way that points people to you and we would live out our hope in front of the world. Lord, I pray that you would break our hearts today for the people that we know that don't know you. Lord, I pray now for anyone in this room who isn't anchored in the hope of your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would draw them to yourself. Pray this in your name. Amen.